You know, I didn't, uh, I can't hear the music up here. So when we did communion a couple of weeks ago, I got to come down and I was standing in front of the speakers and the, the music sounded wonderful. And Sophie, thank you, and, and Michael and everybody else, the many musicians, there'll be more up here later when we close the service, but uh, we are blessed. I don't know what to think about meeting outside. I love it. I like it because it's historical. If you look, read about the Great Awakening in the 1700s uh, here in colonial America, uh, those meetings were outside, uh, typically because the crowds were too large to be accommodated in the, the small church buildings. Uh, but that's, that's been uh, really true through, through history. And uh, I think there's, there's benefit not to asso- always associate uh, our corporate worship with one location. Uh, you, you can, we can, uh, it, it can become rote, as blessed as we are, and architecture can declare the glory of God and the symbolism of the architecture, of which we're grateful. But there's... Uh, there's something of a, of a change that I think is very beneficial and, and make us really look at what we're doing and, and our hearts really in it. So we are blessed to have this shade and this place. I have people that I don't even know or I'm acquainted with around town that are not part of this uh, congregation. They come up to me and say, I hear what y'all are doing downtown. I think that's wonderful. And uh, many have come. They'll say, I've been there a couple of times or some that have been here more than a couple of times. So we're grateful for the Lord. What is this, like 12 weeks now, and we've never had rain <laughs> on a Sunday morning? Uh, but we're, we're very grateful for that. Also, uh, thank you for your feedback. Uh, somebody said recently, said that, Chip, man, when you were preaching, the Spirit really began to move. I, I was feeling sensations I never felt. Then I realized I was sitting on an ant pile. <laughs> no, not really. But be careful where you sit. I've been told that's a, an issue there. Uh, and... We are going through the uh, Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. You have the uh, verse printed there in the order of service, but uh, it's uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. And it's, uh, I'll read all the Beatitudes again, though that's the only one we'll focus on this morning. Here's how Matthew 5 begins with the Sermon on the Mount. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Our Father, we have been created by you, and you've created us with bodies and with souls. And you've told us that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So we ask now that you would feed and nourish our hungry souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, The Beatitudes are what start off the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon covers Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But these are eight qualities that Jesus describes here at the beginning. And they are 
qualities of a true believer. Uh, this is what a, a godly person uh, looks like and aspires to look like. Uh, the word beatitude comes from the Latin word beatus that means blessed or happy. And there is a progression with these eight. Uh, the first six or so, the beginning ones, focus on our relationship with God, to be poor in spirit, to mourn, to be meek, to hunger and thirst after righteousness, merciful, pure in heart. And then the last two focus more on our relationship with other people, being a peacemaker that we'll look at look at today, and then persecuted for righteousness sake, which often comes from being a peacemaker. So what is peace as we come to this uh, verse 9, this, this uh, seventh beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, typically when we mention peace just in normal conversation, we're, we're talking about personal feelings. The idea is a, a personal feeling of rest or or being at peace with others or peace within ourselves, no turbulence in your life. Webster describes it as a state of tranquility. But the Bible puts a somewhat different focus on it. It also says that it's an absence of conflict or enmity. And when peace is spoken about in the Bible, it's focusing on relationships. It's talking about individuals or, or groups being at peace with one another. This is important because a, a person may be very much at odds with others, but have a sense of tranquility about it. Here is a, or imagine a, a woman or a man who is known for having an explosive temper. They let things build up and build up and build up, and then like a volcano, it explodes. And that explodes or erupts sometimes at home, sometimes in the workplace, sometimes on the athletic practice field. Uh, and after this person explodes, everybody around may be wounded and hurting from the words they've just heard and the emotions expressed. And yet that person may say, well, I, I feel better now. I feel a sense of peace when there's really no peace, but they feel that there is, is peace. That is not biblical peace because the relationships are are broken or at least greatly damaged at that moment. So here's the biblical principle about peace. Peace among people begins with being at peace with God. Peace among people begins with being at peace with God. How can I have peace with God? Around here we use the term the bad news, good news to summarize the gospel. You may say, what is that? Well, it simply says the bad news, good news is a summary of the gospel that says that God created our first parents long ago. Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman. And we learn from the Bible that they had five senses like we have. They could taste and touch and see and hear and smell. But they also had a sixth sense, another dimension to their being. It was a spiritual sense that enabled them literally to walk and talk with God without fear and without shame and guilt. And they loved God since they were created to do so. But something happened. God didn't change, but they sinned against God. They, they missed the mark. They, they committed a crime against God. They violated a prohibition that God gave to them. And the result of that was that they died. They died that very day, that very moment. But they did not die physically. They lived for a long time after that. 
They died spiritually. That sixth sense that they had been created with was now uh, destroyed. They suffered the consequences of their crime with God, but even in punishing them, God promised that he would send a redeemer who would come later to pay for their sins. And the Bible says that you and I are born where they ended up. We are born spiritually dead. We are not born with that sixth sense that they had. And so you and I, as a result of that, we commit crimes against God. We sin with our thoughts and our words and our actions. And God says the punishment for those will be death. It's natural to think that, that we can somehow or another make ourselves right with God, recover that relationship with God through our own works, by being good, by gaining favor with God, by doing good works or treating people in a uh, proper way. And then we may think, if I just try hard enough, then God will see my good intentions. Even when I fail, he'll see that my motives were, were genuine and I will be right with him. He will accept me. Uh, but the truth is that there is nothing that can make us right or acceptable to God through our own efforts. All the good deeds in all the world will not be able to take away our problem, which is sin and death, which is the result of, of spiritual death. Thankfully, God is loving and merciful, and in his love and his mercy, he sent his son, Jesus, to be that redeemer. No other substitute would do. He lived a perfect life. He, he never sinned. He allowed himself to be arrested. He allowed himself to be tried and convicted and nailed to a Roman cross as a substitute for others. And when he was on that cross, God took my sins. This is oh, they were written in this book. God took my sins and they, he put them on him. He put all my sins on him and he punished him in my place. Jesus took the punishment that I deserved. He died on that cross. He made a full, complete payment. This was the greatest demonstration of God's love for us, that the wages of sin is death. Someone had to die, and Jesus took that death. His body was taken down from the cross. It was placed in a tomb. His enemies thought, well, that, that's the end of that. But three days later, he rose physically from the grave. Death could not keep him because he had paid the penalty. He had broken the power of death. And before he ascended to heaven, he told his followers that they were to go into all the world and make disciples to tell people of this gift of eternal life. Have you received the gift of eternal life? This is the good news now. To do so, you must believe that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was God's Redeemer, that he was perfect, and that when he died, he died in your place, that he was your substitute that you cannot make yourself right with God through your own efforts. And that when he died, God the Father put your sins on him and that he paid for all of those. And now you turn from going your own way and you turn from living for yourself and you turn to God toward him and to live for him. And when that happens, you are enabled to begin to love God and to love others. And when that happens, you have peace with God. Now you're in a position to be a peacemaker. The book of Ephesians says, and he came and preached peace to those who were far off, that's the Gentiles, and those who were near, that's the Jews. For through him we both have access to one spirit to the Father. 
So how can we be a peacemaker? Um, what is a peacemaker? It's a combination of two words, peace and make. You aggressively seek to make peace. It's not being a peaceful person. It's being a peacemaker with others. If you make something, you actively work at it. It doesn't just appear. You have to put in effort. Peacemaking is active. It's not passive. When something wrong is happening, we must actively resist to try to bring peace. When innocent people suffer at the hands of others, we should support them with help and relief. That's what it means to be a peacemaker. John Calvin hundreds of years ago said, when we see two people at odds with each other, we should feel pity for the two souls redeemed by the blood of our Lord Jesus, but who are in danger of perdition. We should grieve when victory goes to the devil, who is the prince of discord, and when God, who is the author of peace, is shut out. Believer, do you rejoice at the divisions in our nation right now? And when things you oppose, you see people at odds and fighting and damage done? That is not a godly attitude. We should desire to see peace, not at all cost. I'll mention that in a moment. But we don't rejoice with discord. Calvin went on and said, In order to be his disciples, we must not only be peaceable ourselves, we must try as hard as we can to overcome hostility, to put out the fire once it is lit, and to avoid disputes of every kind. He goes on, Whenever we see people yield to hatred, we should intervene early to set things right. We should not wait for Satan to win the day. We should get in there first. That, briefly put, is what we have to grasp to be peacemakers. End quotation. Dr. Norman Wright, I'm not even sure if Dr. Wright is still living, but he was one of the early Christian counselors, and he wrote many books, uh, early Christian counselors, within the past 75 years or so. And he also wrote a diagnostic tool called a family history analysis. It's a fill-in the it's a question-answer kind of thing. I, I've used it with hundreds of people in and out of our church. I get them to fill this out, and then we discuss it. And one of the questions in that family history analysis questionnaire was, how was conflict handled in your family as you were growing up? And you're to put, on, you have columns, how was conflict handled in your family? Who was a winner? Who was a compromiser? who was a yielder, who withdrew, and who resolved. It's, it is amazing to me, of the many individuals and couples I've given that questionnaire to, how quickly the people can say, oh, my brother, he's a winner. Or, my sister, she's a compromiser. My mother, she was a yielder. Uh, my dad, he would withdraw. And I was the one that tried to resolve. I bring this up to say that there are we all have different natural predispositions on how we approach conflict. But in sanctification, the Holy Spirit begins to change us to become more like the image of Christ. What's the point? Some of you are, you, you avoid conflict at all costs. Uh, you will, you never break peace or people are never angry at you because you avoid it. Uh, others, you feel the need to proclaim and do and dominate and say, I'm going to make the most of this situation. And these are our predispositions. So when the Holy Spirit <coughs> begins to mold us to the image of Christ, 
uh, he, he changes us. Some of you who are natural yielders, you need to stand up. The Holy Spirit in your life may bring about uh, aggressiveness at least to say, okay, all right, this needs to stop. Y'all have said enough. Leave this person alone. Some of you who are very vocal and may be dominant and love conflict, the Holy Spirit may transform you to stand down. And whereas your natural bent may be to say, I'm going to give that person a piece of my mind, it will be, no, just listen. My point is it doesn't look the same in every situation of how we go about making peace. But we normally think of a peacemaker as quiet and passive, but often that is not the case. Often that may be uh, not peacemaking at all. So it's doing what the Holy Spirit wants us to do in any given situation to bring about peace as far as we are able. Peacemaking is costly. John Stott said that it involves the great effort and cost of the pain of listening. If you get involved with two people or two parties where there's conflict, you need to listen. Uh, and they, often that's painful. He says that there's a cost of ridding ourselves of prejudice to try to listen and understand. He says there's a cost of trying to understand and empathize with their opposing points of view. Uh, it may involve, there's a cost that, that may involve confronting another person or, or both parties to say, you need to, you need to back up and look at this or, or you, you don't understand what you're talking about and, and I need to point this out to you. There's a cost involved. You're sticking your neck out. You're risking a relationship. There's a cost of sticking with the process and not abandoning them after the initial meeting. Uh, it's not a 45-minute meeting and then peace is brought. Normally, if it's taken years to get in that situation, it's going to take a long time to get out of it. But so there's a cost, if we're to be peacemakers, to get involved and to stick with the situation. So we're to forsake the stirring up of dissension and conflict. We're to forsake gossip, duplicity, hypocrisy, and anything that, that will lead to lack of peace. How are we doing on time? All right, we're doing well. I, I've said we want to be saying the benediction at 9.45, we being me. <laughs> What's the promise here? We shall be called the sons of God. I was asked this week, what does that mean? Because this person asking me, they really did. It wasn't one of those anthill stories. The person really did ask me. Uh, because believers are called the children of God. We know John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. So we already have that, that name. Romans 8 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs also. We are already children of God, so why would this point out we shall be called the sons of God? It's a special it's a special calling out. It's like a, a special, there's going to come a day of special recognition. You think of the prodigal son when he insulted his father, demanding his share of the inheritance and leaving and, and wasting it all, and then coming back to his father, asking to be one of his hired laborers because he had wasted it all, and now he was starving. He literally was wanting to eat the food that he was feeding the pigs. And what does his father do? 
He puts a robe on him. He puts shoes on his feet. He puts his ring on his finger. What were those? Those were signs of sonship. And the dad rejoices, throws the feast, saying, My son who was lost has returned. Was he his son while he was away? Yes, but now he's given a special designation, special recognition. My father was not a man who easily or often expressed love and appreciation to me or my sister. But there were those moments. When I was in college, my dad had been a lawyer for many, many years, and he became a district court judge. And there was to be a swearing-in ceremony. It was a real, it would be the one big ceremony related to this. And this was a great honor. He was, he was thrilled. He was thrilled. He was so honored to be able to serve in my small hometown in this capacity in that county. And so on a Friday afternoon, there was to be a, a swearing-in. The, the local newspaper was going to be there. All the, the legal uh, secretaries, courthouse uh, personnel, lawyers, all these people came for this short but very meaningful swearing-in ceremony. And I was driving from college a couple hours away, which meant, you know what that meant, any college, I was late. I was late everywhere I went. So when I arrived, it was in a large open room in the Etowah County Courthouse. And there were all these people crowded in this room, probably about 80 or 100 people, maybe more. And I stepped in the back door, and I was standing against the wall. And then my dad came in, with, led in by a, like a bailiff, and everybody was asked to stand. And then he said, he, he turned to the crowd, and he said, I, I am so honored to be here and to have this honor to serve in this capacity. And I want to thank all the powers that be, and I want to thank my wife, and I especially want to thank my son, and that he came, that we waited. They held up the ceremony until he arrived. And I'm standing off to the side. I had no idea that was coming, and all these people turned and looked in my direction. What was my dad doing at that moment? He was saying, that is my son, and I love him, and I appreciate him. I don't remember anything else about that ceremony. When he says here, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God in some way that we can only imagine. We're not given the, the clearest details. We will be pointed out and honored because of that. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, making peace with others is not our natural bent. Our natural bent is to find a selfish motive, and we make peace where we can benefit. But we pray that the, the being at peace with you through trusting Christ would be so strong that we are able not only to be at peace with others, but to help others be at peace first with you and then with one another. May fruit come from this, even in this coming week. Some of us are involved, we are related to, and we love people where there's great conflict. And yet, even this week, Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would prod us as to things we could say or do to help bring about peace. In Jesus' name, amen.